tired of blogs? <laughs> Me too. Moby Lives Radio starts now. the intergalactic headquarters of Melville House Publishing in Hoboken, New Jersey, a.k.a. the left bank of New York City, it's Moby Lives Radio. Greetings, Earthlings. It's Friday, the second day in December 2005. I'm Dennis Johnson. On today's show, we'll be talking to publisher Doug Seibold, He's the head of the great independent house, Agate, and we'll be discussing Returns, the truly bizarre secret at the heart of the American book business that Seibold says is making books outrageously expensive for all concerned, including you. We'll also be getting a report from Mobiliz Radio's UK correspondent, Mark Thwaite of ReadySteadyBook.com. But first, here's some news from the book world. Well, in a dramatic development, author Michael Ignatiev, whose American media profile has been on a nonstop rise in recent years thanks to such books as his American Exceptionalism and Human Rights, has announced his departure from his position as director of Harvard's Center for Human Rights Policy in order for him to return to his native Canada. As Sheila Kolhatkar reports in the New York Observer, The news came just a few days before the collapse of Canada's ruling Liberal Party, which is going to force a federal election uh, now scheduled for January. Ignatieff has said he intends to run for parliament in that election, and Kolhatkar reports he's widely regarded as a likely candidate for Prime Minister of Canada if, as expected, the current besieged Prime Minister Paul Martin steps down. Elsewhere, after announcing the books it considered the top 100 of the year, more than a third of which came from Random House and more than two-thirds of which came from men, the New York Times has announced its top 10 books of the year, two-thirds of which, again, came from men. Um, This list, however, didn't feature titles mostly written by Times staffers or contributors, um, but while the top 10, uh, I'm sorry, while the top 100 featured only four titles from independent publishers, the top 10 featured none. It was all conglomerates, including seven out of 10 from Random House. The best books of the year, according to the New York Times, were Kafka on the Shore by Haruki Murakami from Random House imprint Alfred A. Knopf, On Beauty by Zadie Smith from Penguin, Curtis Sittenfeld's Prep, another Random House book. Ian McEwan's Saturday from uh, another Random House imprint, Doubleday. Veronica by Mary Gatesgill from uh, another Random House imprint, Pantheon. In nonfiction, it was George Packer's The Assassin's Gate from Farrar Strauss-Gerot. Amer- uh, De Kooning by Mark Stevens and Annalyn Swan from Random House imprint, Knopf. The Lost Painting by Jonathan Haar from... Random House, Post-War, A History of Europe Since 1945 by Tony Jutt from the Penguin Press, and The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion from Random House imprint, Knopf. 
This weekend, the Small Press Center in New York will be celebrating its 20th anniversary with the book fair and various events and panel discussions to be held at its Midtown Manhattan headquarters. Earlier in the week, New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg proclaimed Small Press Center Day with a proclamation that read in part, quote, From Leaves of Grass to Ulysses, some of history's most important books have been produced and distributed by small publishers. For 20 years, the Small Press Center has provided crucial support to an estimated 50,000 small American presses, enhancing their abilities to reach their readers, many of whom have special interests not met by larger publishers. End quote. Elsewhere, the Library of Congress was evacuated for several hours on Wednesday because of a suspicious odor. According to a Reuters Wire story, two people reported feeling faint from the odor and one was taken to a hospital for further examination. Emergency teams were called in and have since declared the building safe, but they have not announced their findings as to what caused the problem. And finally, food critic and first-time novelist Giles Corin has won the prestigious Bad Sex and Fiction Prize from Great Britain's Literary Review. The passage, which Moby Lives predicted earlier this week would win the contest, described the protagonist's penis as, quote, leaping around like a shower dropped in an empty bath, end quote. The passage ended with the words, like Zorro. Judges said, quote, it was the overly excited shower which clinched the deal for Giles Corrin. Close quote. The Literary Review annually awards winners with an Oscar-like statuette and a bottle of champagne, but only if they show up in person to accept. Corin has apparently indicated he'll be there. And that's the news for Friday, 2nd of December 2005. I'm Dennis Johnson. It's December 2nd, and on this day in literary history in 1793, at the age of 21, the great English romantic poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge joined the cavalry. Having fallen into dissolution and debt while at Cambridge University, he fled his debtors by enlisting in the Light Dragoons. But he immediately regretted his decision, and his brother, Captain James Coleridge, finally arranged for his discharge by reason of insanity and got him safely back to Cambridge. He narrowly escaped being sent to fight in France. It seems he couldn't ride a horse. At Cambridge, he met William Wordsworth, and what ensued was one of the most fruitful creative relationships in English literature. From Coleridge and Wordsworth's friendship came their famous collaboration, The Lyrical Ballads, which opened with Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner and ended with Wordsworth's Tintern Abbey. These poems set a completely new style in poetry, using everyday language and images of nature in entirely new ways. The book essentially launched the English Romantic movement. Suffering from neuralgia and rheumatic pain all his life, Coleridge was addicted to opium, which was freely prescribed by physicians at the time. According to the poet, he heard the words of his famous poem, Kubla Khan, in an opium dream. 
It begins, In Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree, where Alf the sacred river ran, through caverns measureless to man, down to a sunless sea. He woke to transcribe the poem, but when a, quote, gentleman from Poorlock knocked at his door, it broke the spell, and the poem remained unfinished. In 1910, Coleridge's friendship with Wordsworth came to a crisis, and perhaps this had something to do with the unhappily married Coleridge falling in love with Wordsworth's sister-in-law, who lived with the Wordsworths and doted on William. But Coleridge's influence on the younger Romantic poets was intense. When Lord Byron read Coleridge's long poem Christabel to Shelley and his wife, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, as they vacationed on Byron's villa at, on the shores of Lake Geneva, Shelley shrieked and fainted away, possessed with a frightening vision of a woman who had eyes in place of nipples. And Mary Shelley promptly retired to her room and began her great novel, Frankenstein. Coleridge continued to publish poetry, and in 1817 he published what is considered by many to be his most significant work, Biographa Literaria, Essays of Literary Criticism. And in 1828, Coleridge was reconciled with his friend Wordsworth, though the two never collaborated again. And it is unknown if he ever really learned how to ride a horse. I'm Valerie Marians, and that's this day in literary history. I know my chicken. You got to know you are chicken. I know my chicken. You got to know you are chicken. This is uh, Mark Swate from Ready Steady Book, giving the um, UK Moby Lives Radio Report. Um, here in the UK this week, um, the news has been dribbling in as it does, and an interesting piece was that um, Random House, the publisher of John Grisham, are launching their first guerrilla campaign for the author, guerrilla marketing campaign. I um, don't really know why they need this. Grisham seems to sell fairly well. But um, released today is his book, The Broker, and Random House are giving 300 Random House staff copies of the new paperback to read on public transport to, um, to get the public interested in Grisham. So if Grisham sells more, it's because 300 people read him on a bus. Um, <laughs> seems an unlikely campaign, but there we go. Mental illness has been linked to art and sex. A survey carried out by Daniel Nettle, a psychologist at Newcastle University, and Helen Clegg at the University of Milton Keynes, the Open University that is, um, carried out a survey hoping to answer the question that's been puzzling scientists for ages, which is why schizophrenia remains in the gene pool. Darwinism would suggest that the genes um, would eventually disappear, that they would be bred out. So how come it, they're still in the gene pool? And um, the survey found out, um, it questioned a number of artists and a number, number of non-artists, and it found out that artists had twice as many sexual partners by the age of 18 as the general population, and that the number of partners increased with the seriousness with which artists pursued their art. It also linked um, artists and schizophrenics and found that artists are more likely to share key behavioral traits with schizophrenics um, than the non-artists. So there seems to be a very close link here between schizophrenia and artists, and artists getting a lot of sex. So um, if you're a writer, at least you've got one thing going for you.
C.S. Lewis, um, who's, uh, who wrote the Narnia um, books, the, the, the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, all those childhood favorites, was, it turned out, absolutely opposed to the idea of a live-action version of his film. Um, in a letter dated um, December the 18th, 1959, Lewis made it clear that um, he was absolutely opposed, adamant isn't it, to a TV version of any of his books. Anthropomorphic animals, he thought, when taken out of the narrative, um, turned into buffoonery or nightmare. So um, what he would make of the up-and-coming uh, film coming out by Disney, which, which they hope is going to be their big Christmas blockbuster, we can only guess, but um, one feels that C.S. Clive Staples wouldn't have been very happy at all. The Poetry Archive has just launched this week, and it has an 1890 recording of Lord Tennyson reading The Charge of the Light Brigade. It sounds absolutely appalling, but um, at least it's there, and at least it's been archived. And um, the Poetry Archive, which is... Um, which is aimed to kind of be an archive of, of, of all um, sort of important British poets, um, has got an impressive back catalogue with people like Kipling, Yeats. Um, there's also an 1889 recording of Robert Browning. Uh, modern poets, including Harold Pinter, who recently won the Nobel Prize, but who's very, very ill with cancer, Seamus Heaney and Margaret Atwood, are all going to be, all gonna be um, there in the archive, and it can be accessed at poetryarchive.org. Org. Um, the new archive, um, it, it, it is hoped, will um, really push poetry to the fore. Um, Andrew Motion launched it. He's the poet laureate over here, um, and he's um, he's hoping it will focus the media back on poets and their poetry, because he says that the media is only interested in poets when their love life is is in the news. But as we we heard earlier, the reason that poets love life is in the, is in the news is because they get loads because they're probably schizophrenic. So um, that's, that's some of the UK book news this week. And the final thing, which is um, a little bit disturbing, um, but I think it's worth talking about because it doesn't really seem to have, have really got much attention in the UK media, and one wonders why that, that is. But Verso, which is a small um, independent left-wing publisher in the UK, has recently um, brought out a copy of the statement the statements of Osama bin Laden. Um, now, they're, they're, they're edited and introduced by Bruce Lawrence, that they're a scholarly edition, and the attempt is to see what Osama bin Laden is, is saying. Um, no attempt to justify um, what he's saying, but certainly to get that information out there. Um, Messages to the World, the book is called, and it was due to be in the shops by the publication date of November the 17th. But for reasons um, that are not understood and are not known, um, the book was held up by the Port Health Authority um, for two weeks. Now, Verso have no idea why this happened. Um, eventually, the book did turn up, and um, the Port Health Authority told the publisher that it was due to a food package in the shipping carton being contaminated. It seems rather strange that a food package was in a carton of books, and that that was a contaminant enough to make the Port Health Authority stop the books coming into the country for a couple of weeks. And it's made even more worrying by the fact that when the books did turn up, somebody had been tearing through the boxes and the books arrived with the publisher damaged. So 
what are we to make of this? Um, certainly, there is a feeling in this country um, that civil liberties are being pushed to the back foot. Um, and this just this is just happening in, I think, quite a worrying atmosphere. At the end of September, an 82-year-old um, activist was thrown out of the Labour Party conference just for heckling, just for um, shouting at, um, at the podium. And he was actually held, um, when he was taken out of the conference, under, um, under the new Terrorism Act. So there's, there's a lot of upset in, in, in this country that the civil liberties do seem to be being squeezed somewhat. And, um, and I just think the case of the Port Health Authority holding those books up whether it was innocent or not, is, um, is an upsetting and worrying development. And it's on that note that I'll end the report from the UK today. So this is Mark Thwaite, um, Managing Editor of Ready Steady Book, signing off, and I'll speak to you in a week's time. Bye-bye now. is a return. A return is when a bookseller or a wholesaler, after having purchased a book from a publisher and then having found that book to be unsellable or after having decided that they have other books that they would rather sell instead, uh, sends that book back to the publisher, returns it for a full refund. And that could be two months after the book uh, was first sent to them. It could be six months after or it could be years after. They always have that option to return the book to the publisher uh, for a full refund. Well, you're a publisher. You, you run one of America's great small independents, Agate. Is it possible that you have a prejudiced point of view on this? Uh, no doubt about it. Uh, completely self-interested uh, prejudiced point of view. I think like every uh, small press publisher, independent publisher, um, uh, these are, are one of the returns are one of the banes of our existence. There's, there's nothing that will make you gnash your teeth more than after you've shipped out a bunch of books and then you start to see them come back. But I've been surprised to see that uh, more and more people from all different quarters of the industry are beginning to recognize that, uh, that returns are something that's really dragging down you know, all of publishing. And uh, more and more people are seeing it as something that maybe isn't a necessary evil, which has always been the traditional view, but, mm -hmm. but as a problem that we need to figure out how to solve. Well, essentially what you're talking about is a consignment business, and I, I know that most people outside of the book business think that it's crazy. Uh, how did it actually get started? Do you know? Yeah, it, it, the, the origins of the practice go back to the Depression, uh, when, when publishers were concerned about the viability of small bookstores across the country, many of which were, were struggling the way so many other small businesses were. And so they, they, allowed, uh, uh, they allowed these small bookstores to send books back to the publishers as a way to try to, to try to keep them in business. 
and to try to keep them from not feeling the same kind of effects from, you know, from the economic woes that were affecting everybody else. Uh, the bigger question has been why has it, uh, has it persisted when so much has changed? And really, I think the big question is why it continues to persist now after, after two really, really seismic uh, shifts in the whole publishing industry that have happened over the past 10 years or so, one of which is, has been uh, the rise of the chain booksellers. And uh, even beyond them, the, ri- the rise of, uh, of the big box retailers, which command so much power in terms of the the whole retail end of publishing and has really changed the traditional balance between the bookseller and the publisher. They just have so much more clout um, relative to the publishers um, than, than booksellers used to. And the other big change has been, of course, the Internet and the rise of digital media, and, and in particular the way it's changed how, uh, how books are priced. You know, nowadays on the Internet, it can be incredibly simple to get any book, even a very new book, at all kinds of different price points. And so the ways in which returns traditionally bolstered, uh, you know, this whole process whereby, um, you know, publishers and booksellers could have more control over how books were distributed and priced, like so many other things in publishing, is breaking down, you know, because of the pressure that's coming from the Internet. Mm-hmm. Well, there are other kinds of pressures on publishers and retailers to have a lot of books out there. Aren't sure. You? I mean, I'm thinking of a couple of things. I'm thinking about how um, the Melville House, uh, every now and then we get a call from the books editor of USA Today who wants to know uh, not really anything of substance about a book, but how many copies of it we're printing. Or Barnes & Noble is interested in doing some kind of display on one of our books if we ship a couple thousand more copies than we think is maybe recommended, but we're gamblers and we love the book and maybe we think we should do it. If it's just there, people will buy it. And if it's there in a big stack looking good. Um, and then again, the uh, that's, that's no dispersion on Barnes & Noble. Um, maybe they believe in the book that way too and that's why they want a big stack of it. Um, how would, uh, how would uh, the fact of returns impact decisions like that? Well, the returns provide the, the, the safety net that makes it possible for people to do this kind of, of speculating. And again, this is where you have this sort of, you know, conspiring uh, between the booksellers and the publishers to, you know, keep this sort of this practice uh, going, even after it's really stopped making sense. You know, I mean, books are still a, a retail product. Mm-hmm. There's still a, a great dependence on people coming into stores, handling a book, taking a look at it, being intrigued by it, and and that being what uh, what leads them to buy it mm-hmm. right there. And having good distribution of a book, having the book out there in as many places as you can possibly get it, having it as attractively displayed in as, as great a volume as you can possibly get it out there is something that every publisher wants. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to have as many of your books out there as you possibly can because then you're going to sell more. Mm-hmm. However, if, uh, if for whatever reason that, that window... Uh, doesn't become the opportunity for that book to blossom into a huge seller, then you've got a situation where you've got a bookseller with a whole bunch of books in their hands, and that's not always something that uh, <laughs> that they're able to handle, especially when they've got a flood of other titles that are coming in from publishers that are producing more and more new books right. every year. And so, you know, returns are the safety valve. Returns are the way they can 
you know, keep their stock moving even if not all of that stock is being purchased by consumers. Well, is, is, um, is the shorter window of opportunity part of the problem? No question. I think that that is, you know, one of the keys to all of this. But also, it has to do with that shorter window. You know, there's such pressure with new books coming out all the time that, you know, these optimal display opportunities where a book comes out and is on all of the tables or it's on all of the front racks or it's on all of the shelves faced out could just be, you know, a very, very brief period of time, a matter of weeks. And if that book doesn't hit in that period, then, you know, it's a tough spot for for everybody who's involved in this whole equation. Mm -hmm. So that is definitely something that is a big factor in this. Mm -hmm. Well, in a recent essay for the book standard, you wrote that ending returns would benefit everyone in the book business, including and maybe especially the customers. How? Well, and this is this is where the the argument gets a little a little bit difficult. I mean, because really, what it is is it, it's a situation where you're asking people to take, especially the people in the industry, you know, the publishers and the retailers, to take uh, one step back so that they can go two steps forward. You know, the one step back is going to be a, a little bit of a, a deflationary shock. You know, because what returns does is it creates sort of this artificial bubble. You know, this this safety net that that publishers throw out there for retailers is something that enables them to push more books into stores. It enables uh, it enables people to sort of claim sort of gaudier numbers in terms of quantities printed, quantities shipped, quantities sold. Um, it's something that uh, that gives people that nice uh, that placement out there. Um, but it's incredibly inefficient. Mm-hmm. You know, it's incredibly costly for publishers to essentially look at, you know, producing so many extra copies of books that that may never get sold, um, essentially as a marketing cost. Mm-hmm. And it, it at the same time, it's very very costly for the booksellers. Everybody that they have who is packing and unpacking boxes is somebody who can't be out on their sales floor talking to customers, hand-selling books, doing all the other things that, you know, guess, guess who? Publishers really want booksellers to be doing with their new titles. So what you're really, what you're really talking about here is an opportunity for, for the, in, the whole industry to get more efficient, which, you know, is something that is felt most keenly at the corporate level of publishing. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly I think every independent publisher would love to see their books go out and not come back. But I think at the corporate level, there's especially a big pressure for, uh, for publishing to become a more efficient business. And when so many of the corporate owners of publishing companies are diversified media operations and they're comparing book publishing to the TV business or the film business, they look at these inefficiencies and they say, wow, how can we, how can we make this business look better? Mm-hmm. Getting rid of returns could be, you know, one of the first steps there. And for the customer, you know, I think at bottom what it would do is it would create a situation where, you know, they would have to they would get an opportunity to get books in the formats that they want and at the price point that they want sooner. Mm-hmm. You know, right now publishing is still a little bit in this model, kind of like where the film industry was and, and, and still sort of is, where, you know, book comes out, uh, most first-run books, you know, when they first come around are a hardback um, you know, mostly they're, uh, you know, they're a significant amount, you know, more than a paperback book would be. The long-term life of most books is going to be in the paperback format. 
rather than in the hardback format. And, you know, returns, again, is, is, is something where, you know, it really has sort of prolonged the life of the hardback book, you know, in the hardback format, mm-hmm. because, you know, the book comes out in a hardback. Um, everybody knows that in the long term, the book is going to be in the paperback, and it's going to be much more attractively priced. But, uh, you know, they want to get that, that better margin for as long as they possibly can. And so, you know, that sort of, you know, confounds the consumer a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, the consumers now have a great weapon uh, in, in terms of the Internet. You know, they're now able to get access to books, um, you know, new books or slightly used books at very attractive price points not long after those books have been published. Mm-hmm. And that, again, is creating this pressure um, on the industry to figure out, you know, how they can possibly get rid of returns and, and figure out a more efficient way to move forward. So you've got a system that essentially has the publisher as the only one with a financial stake in a book, at the start anyway. They have to absorb any, any return of the book, and yet you're suggesting it would be beneficial to, to retailers as well as to customers to end, end the return system. But I guess the ultimate question is, is an end to returns likely? <laughs> well, I hope so. You know, I, I tend to feel as an independent publisher that, um, you know, there there are enough venues now to make people aware of books and for people to buy books that you don't feel the same kind of uh, pinch from the retailers uh, that you did maybe 10 or 20 years ago, where if they were really afraid to buy a book, um, you know, you really felt like you were going to get squeezed out. That's always a risk for a publisher. Um, but uh, especially for an independent publisher, you know, you're not advancing books in these huge quantities. And that's where most of the returns are really coming from. You know, percentage-wise, the returns are coming on the big books, the high-profile books, you know, that the corporate publishers are gambling on to get out there in big quantities. And so they'll see returns of like 40, 50, 60 percent. Right. It's possible for small publishers and also for small independent book retailers to be smarter. That's their competitive advantage. And, you know, certainly technology is advanced to the point where it's easier for people to get books fast, to get them in the quantity that they need them, to get them delivered, you know, sometimes overnight if they need to. You know, all of these ordering mechanisms are all highly automated now. You know, it's, it's possible to take advantage of the efficiencies that, you know, that technology has brought us if, if we can get over our, um, you know, our, our sort of industry-wide dependence on returns. So, Doug, what is it going to take to bring about the death of the return system? I wish I knew. I mean, I think that's the question that everybody's trying to answer. But uh, I think more and more people are realizing that if you, if you, if you look at any of the problems that, that people in our industry complain about as problems with publishing, and you, and you really you know, dig under the surface of that problem, you'll find that at bottom, in one way or another, the practice of returns is, is propping that problem up. Whether you're talking about, uh, you know, overinflated advances for authors, especially first-time authors who don't have a real sales track record, if you're talking about the, uh, the pace at which books sort of sluice through uh, bookstores and, you know, the limited amount of time that they have for people to buy them, if you're talking about, um, you know, the pressure that, uh, that 
booksellers have to sort of swallow large quantities of stock from mm -hmm. publishers of books that maybe don't have the greatest prospects once they're actually in the store. Mm -hmm. You know, all of those are things that are propped up by returns. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all of us have a stake in, in seeing those kinds of inefficiencies go away. But what, who could actually do it, you know, is that's the big question. And I was very surprised to see a quote by uh, Steve Riggio, the CEO of Barnes & Noble, in an article about the returns practice that appeared on the front page of the Wall Street Journal uh, right uh, on the first day of the last Book Expo um, that happened last fall. That was uh, an interview with uh, Jeffrey Trachtenberg? Who is the journal's wonderful uh, publishing correspondent. And it uh, couldn't have been better timed, could have been better placed. But Riggio came out against the returns policy. I mean, he's one retailer, at least, who feels like uh, it's something that doesn't necessarily work for him anymore. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think he sees that it's costly. It's something that chews up a lot of his staff's time, and it's all time that could be better spent doing other things. But Riggio said, you know, our, the, publi the publishers are, are, you know, sort of accomplices in all this, and mm -hmm. we really can't do this unless the publishers are willing to do it too. And to my mind, you know, the only publishers that really have the, the juice to do this are the big corporate guys. And possibly, you know, it might be one of the corporate titans who's controlling one of these large diversified media companies that own most of our large corporate publishers who might be willing to take that one step back, you know, so that the whole industry can take those two steps forward. They might be the only kind of people who have the kind of clout to make this happen. Well, Doug Seibold publisher of Agate. Thank you for coming on Moby Liz Radio and uh, uh, hang in there. Thanks. <laughs> and that's our show for the 2nd of December, 2005. Thanks to our guest, Doug Seibold of the great independent publishing house Agate. He spoke to us from Agate's offices in Chicago. And thanks to Moby Liz Radio's UK correspondent, Mark Thwaite of ReadySteadyBook.com. And while I'm at it, thanks to the staff. Engineer Andrew Steinmetz, editors Kelly Burdick and Becky Kramer, and Melville House publisher Valerie Marians. Come back next week when we've got some really great shows coming up. We've got French writer Bernard-Henri Lévy on tap. We've got the executive producer of Book TV, Connie Debelly, coming. We've got poet Hal Surowitz. The book slut Jessa Crispin is going to be here telling us about what she thinks is the best bookstore in Chicago. And UK reports, Canada reports, you name it, it's going to be rocking. For now, have a good weekend, and don't forget while you're out and about, that whale is out there, man. One night Farmer Brown was taking the air, locked up the barnyard with the greatest of care. Down in the hen house something stirred When he shouted, who's there? This is what he heard There ain't nobody here but us chickens There ain't nobody here at all So calm yourself and stop that fuss There ain't nobody here but us We chickens trying to sleep And you butt in And hobble, 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 hobble With your chin There ain't nobody here but us chickens there ain't nobody here at all You're stomping around And shaking the ground You're kicking up an awful dust We chickens trying to sleep And you butt in And hobble, 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 hobble It's a sin Tomorrow 
it's a busy day. We got things to do, we got eggs to lay, we got ground to dig and worms to scratch. It takes a lot of setting, getting chicks to hatch. Oh, there ain't nobody here but us chickens. There ain't nobody here at all. So quiet yourself and stop that fuss. There ain't nobody here but us. Kindly point that gun the other way and hobble, hobble, hobble off and hit the head. to do, we got eggs to lay, we got ground to dig and worms to scratch. It takes a lot of setting, getting chicks to hatch. There ain't nobody here but us chickens. There ain't nobody here at all. So quiet yourself and stop that fuss. There ain't nobody here but us. And kindly point that gun the other way and hobble, hobble, hobble off and hit the head. Hey, hey, boss man, what do you say? It's easy pickings. There ain't nobody here but us chickens. 